Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show dedicated to policy analysis in international affairs. In this episode, we continue our conversation about returning foreign fighters. Now, for a quick refresher, returning foreign fighters are radicalized citizens from Western countries such as Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom, who have gone overseas to fight with terrorist organizations such as the Islamic State, and now might return home, as in the case of the Islamic State, the organization no longer controls meaningful territory in Syria or Iraq. Now, to address this issue, some countries such as the US, the UK, Australia and France have actively hunted down their own foreign fighters to prevent them from coming home using what some have called death squads, though it should be noted that Canada has thus far refused to do the same. Now, taking all this into consideration, the question is, what policies should Western countries implement to deal with the return of foreign fighters? To help us continue to explore this topic, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Amar Amara Singham, a postdoctoral fellow and lecturer at the University of Waterloo and a renowned expert on Western foreign fighters. Dr. Amara Singham, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this evening. Thanks for having me. So jumping right in, um, I want to talk a little bit about what the government of Canada is reporting in terms of figures on uh, returning foreign fighters, or perhaps the lack the lack of figures that the government of Canada is, is sharing, um, including the exact number and where exactly they're coming from. Do you have any insight on why the government might be reluctant to be more transparent on these details? Or is it perhaps that the government doesn't actually know? Um, no, I think the government definitely knows um, where these numbers are coming from. I know some of the people, for example, who used to work in CSIS that um, were responsible for uh, putting together these lists and so on. And, and, and so I, I know that they, uh, I know that these numbers come from kind of a good place. It, it, I think, I think what happens is when it gets translated, I guess, or moved on up to the politicians, um, sometimes there's a kind of uh, loss in translation effect that seems to be happening. Um, Cause I know that the people who made the list or who people who keep the list um, uh, are very specific about what these numbers mean. So, for example, what what hasn't been communicated to the Canadian public um, is when, for example, um, a returnee or, or the um, calculation of the returnees begins. So we don't know whether they're beginning, for example, in the 1980s with the Afghan-Soviet uh, conflict, whether they're beginning with Chechnya, Bosnia, Somalia, whether they're beginning with Syria, whether it started in 2011, 2013, um, we don't know when they started counting, right? Um, and so that's a major problem in that we've had... So when they throw out numbers like we have 180 people who have traveled abroad for terrorist purposes or we have 60 returnees in Canada, we don't really know what that means um, when it comes to um, what what conflict they're from and what groups they've uh, fought with and so on. So when, when the minister goes out and says we have 60 ISIS returnees, um, that is not actually true. And that's not actually what people who keep the list and make the list... Um, are saying either, and so then uh, there's a problem in, in in kind of the loss in translation effect. I don't, and I don't know why they're kind of reluctant to go out and correct that either, because I think they know it's a mistake. It's just they haven't gone out and uh, tried to fix that number either. So this sixty number that you mentioned, that I know that the public safety minister has used in the House mm-hmm. of Commons, um, that is then more uh, a, a broader number than just those returning from fighting for the Islamic State. 
Yeah, so for example, I mean, we have a lot of fighters who've gone um, since 2012 to fight with groups like the Free Syrian Army, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, which was a kind of AQ-linked or al-Qaeda-linked um, movement in Syria. We have a, a few, maybe one or two or three, fighting with Ahra al-Sham, which is a kind of generically Salafist movement um, in Syria, but that's not really a listed terrorist organization. Um, and, and, and so the number is all over the place. And I know, for example, that they also include uh, people who've left Canada for uh, extremist purposes, uh, whatever that means, but didn't actually make it into Syria. So if you, uh, for example, the three girls from Brampton who in 2014 left Canada, uh, went to Egypt with the plan eventually of going to Syria, uh, but were actually stopped by the RCMP and Egyptian police in Cairo and sent home. Those are counted as returnees, right? Because they mm. left with some intention to join a terrorist group, but were foiled and sent home. But that doesn't mean that they're not returnees. And so all of those numbers, all of those individuals are included in this kind of blob <laughs> of returnees that we're talking about. Um, it would be great to kind of have the government clarify what all, all of the different strands of individuals they've included in these numbers, but they haven't really gone around doing that, which is part of the problem and part of the reason why this kind of conversation is happening publicly. Because I think most Canadians are under the impression that somehow 60 hardened ISIS fighters, fully trained, are now on their way back to Canada or already back in Canada um, and that the government isn't doing anything about it, which is um, almost every aspect of that sentence that I just said is false. Um, and and so, th so that's the problem with the kind of silence from the government side. I want to return in a moment <clears throat> to talk about um, picking up on what you just said, what the Canadian government um, is or is not doing with, uh, with returned foreign fighters or uh, returned extremists once they get back into Canada, um, if and when they get back to Canada. Um, but for a moment, looking uh, in theater, so to speak, um, one thing that separates Canada currently from other nations such as the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, in Australia is this idea of, of uh, colloquially, I, I know they use the term death squads, or the fact that these nations have taken some steps to actively hunt down some of their own citizens in theater to prevent them yeah. from returning. Uh, Canada has taken a stance and said that that's not something that they're that they're doing and not something that they're they're pursuing. In your view, um, is this the right step for Canada to take? Is this the right position for Canada to take, given what's what other allies are doing? I think so. I mean, I think um, you know, for example, you, you had you had the British government target someone like Junaid Hussein, for example, who, uh, it, while he was in the UK, was uh, hacking Tony Blair's emails, uh, and then became radicalized, went off to Syria, and was actively organizing uh, not only British fighters to launch attacks locally, but American fighters to launch attacks locally. And he's, he was even in touch with a few Canadians like Aaron Driver um, from London, Ontario, who tried to blow himself up last year and so on. So. Uh, he was specifically in charge of, or at least um, doing a lot of kind of external operations and trying to influence and recruit uh, people who would attack at home. Um, so someone like him was targeted uh, and killed a few years ago. Um, and so you do have individuals like that who were particularly targeted or specifically targeted by the British government because they were um, not just kind of over there fighting, but were actively um, recruiting for and organizing attacks in their home country. Um, we don't really have any Canadians that are doing that, as far as I know. Um, we know 
um, we, we, we do know, you know, we do have this problem of kind of exporting terror. Um, and that is a real problem that should be dealt with. So, you know, we have someone like Tamim Chowdhury from Windsor, Ontario, and Calgary, who went off to Bangladesh and took on the leadership of ISIS in Bangladesh um, and was responsible for the massacre that happened last year in in the in the kind of artisan bakery in um, in 2016, where 23 people were hacked to death, um, and 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 stories like that. And there are a bunch of stories like that where Canadians have you know traveled to. Uh, be involved in and, and, and do kind of horrendous activity overseas. Um, but we haven't really taken that as a reason to say we're going to target these people and, and try to wipe them off the map. It may, maybe part of it is that that's just not the Canadian approach, but I think there's also a broader legal question of is this uh, is this a legal thing to do to target your own citizens uh, abroad? And so there's been a long kind of debate about whether that's even allowed and whether that should be something that Canada should be doing. Um, I kind of prefer the Canadian approach because I think these these guys are our problem um, and just kind of bombing we're not going to really bomb our, uh, ourselves out of this problem I think I think there's a broader problem and broader social movement that we're dealing with and we got to kind of address it head-on locally um, if we're ever going to really tackle it in any real way right and just picking up on that and I'm certainly no legal expert um, <laughs> that's why I study international affairs but um, <laughs> We had Phil Gursky on in our previous episode uh, on this topic, and he he raised the, the the question of due process, the idea that you know Canadian citizens, um, mm-hmm. given given the institutions that we have in this country, uh, need to have due process, and that just you know just eliminating, killing, targeting these individuals without due process is uh, un-Canadian, uh, uh, perhaps, and perhaps also illegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think it is it is a tricky slope, and I mean, um, you know, the Americans did it with Anwar Awlaki, for example, in Yemen, um, where he where just because of his kind of recruitment efforts and propaganda uh, presence in the kind of propaganda space, um, he was he was launching you know he was organizing individuals and inspiring individuals, and so the Americans thought that was enough to kind of target him um, from from Yemen, and they also killed his 16 year old son as well, and so. We kind of look at that and say that that's somehow not a good thing, right? It's not something that you should be doing to your own citizens or any uh, any young person for for that matter, just because they were doing some kind of propaganda. Um, I think, I, I mean, it's a tricky one because I think if if you do have someone like Junaid Hussein, who is actively organizing attacks uh, in your home country, um, I would I would argue that maybe the Brits had a kind of at least a, I don't know about legal argument but at least a moral argument for taking him out which I think is what they kind of stick to at the moment and because they've had some success with that they're trying to take that um, as as a kind of new policy I guess with their foreign fighters the Brits also have a lot more foreign fighters and so that's another kind of um, issue that 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 isn't really or is rarely talked about with the European scene. Um, you know, you had something like 600 or so from the from uh, Britain who have left. You have uh, seven or 800 from France, another 600 from Belgium. Um, so you have that problem, plus the lack of borders. That that the very fact that you can actually drive from a place like Paris right to the Syrian border uh, means that your returnee problem uh, is is much different than what we're dealing with as Canadians. And so. Uh, and as Americans, for that matter, and, and and so I think the European policy towards this is 
um, colored by this idea that, you know, people are streaming in and we don't really know what's going on. Um, and there's a lot of them that are left that have left and they're inspiring others back home. And they've also had more attacks. And so I think all of that put together, um, all of that put together does have an impact on, on policy discussions locally. If, if Canadians, I think, had 60 to 100 returnees, um, much like public safety is saying publicly, uh, if that was real, I think our conversation would be very different as well. Does taking uh, a very different position, well, taking the opposite position, I suppose, on this this idea of of targeting and hunting uh, citizens in theater, from taking uh, for Canada to take the opposite position from perhaps the United States and in, in the United Kingdom, amongst others, does that, in your view, limit our ability? to work with our allies in NATO or in Five Eyes to combat terrorism? Um, not not really, because I think, uh, you know, intelligence sharing happens every day. And I think um, much like how we learned about Aaron Driver's uh, plans through the FBI, uh, where he was actually sending a video of some kind, uh, as far as I understand it anyway, he was sending a video uh, pledging allegiance to ISIS to somebody in Syria, and the, NF- and the FBI kind of snatched it out of the sky. Um, and gave it to us on the same day or, or, or a couple uh, within a couple of hours. I think intelligence sharing happens a lot, and I think we can contribute to that uh, in whatever way we're skilled to do. But um, we, I don't think we're involved in, in in that kind of targeted killing. I know a few journalists have been looking into it uh, uh, to see whether the guy, the Canadians who have been killed in airstrikes, whether the Canadians had any involvement in them. And I, do, I think the verdict is out on that. Uh, we've had a few Canadians, for example, you know, uh, Colin and Gregory Gordon from Calgary, who were uh, hit in an airstrike, uh, and a few others who were killed in airstrikes. That we don't know whether the Canadians provided any in, intel to the Americans, or whether the American, you know, what the Americans kind of knew they were there and, and decided to take them out that way. But um, we don't know how these killings happened, but we know that they were killed in airstrikes, and, and sometimes very targeted airstrikes as well. And so. Uh, Whether the Canadians had a hand in it, we don't really know yet. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. said even one ISIS fighter represents a security threat to Canada and then he hid the number of ISIS fighters who have returned here. When asked about how he planned to manage this threat he then said the government is there to help them let go of their terrorist ideology. Mr. Speaker, what he should have said is that there will be consequences when choosing to fight for a terrorist death cult. Where is the Prime Minister's commitment to seek justice for the victims of ISIS and how many ISIS fighters have returned to Canada. Mr. Speaker, CSIS, the RCMP, and CBSA pay very close attention to anyone who poses a threat to the security of Canada. We work closely with allies in the Five Eyes and the G7. Surveillance and investigations are tight and thorough. When evidence is actually available, charges are laid, and a range of other legal measures are also available under the Criminal Code and the CSIS Act. That was an exchange between Michelle Rempel, the Conservative Shadow Cabinet Minister for Immigration, 
and Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale. And given the continued partisan and ideological divide on returning foreign fighters, Dr. Amara Singham and I discussed Canadian policy to address this issue moving forward. Shifting gears a little bit now um, to talk about domestic policy, so what the, what the government is doing here in Canada uh, with returning foreign fighters, um, or perhaps even with individuals who have been radicalized but haven't left yet. Um, one of the key concerns that's raised uh, on this issue about returning foreign fighters is that these fighters come back to Canada with skills and abilities to inflict violence that they perhaps gained while being radicalized um, and a member of a terrorist organization such as the Islamic State. Is that a legitimate fear? Uh, of course, yeah. I think, um, you know, we know of a few Canadians who are pretty heavily trained. Um, one of the one guy that kind of keeps me up at night uh, is Muhammad Ali from Mississauga, who's been reported on a few times. Um, so he, he got, you know, sniper training uh, with when he was with the Islamic State, and by all indications, he's still alive. Um, if someone like him were to come back or sneak back in, and I don't think it's really possible, but if, if in theory it were possible to just sneak back in um you know he would he he would be someone who can cause quite a bit of damage uh to the to the population uh not just in canada but if he was to sneak into europe and decide to do attacks in europe or something um so yeah there are definitely people uh who are very highly trained who are completely uh radicalized and 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 um committed to launching attacks on behalf of isis particularly now that the land is being taken and, and, and some of the major cities that I used to control are being reacquired, um, there is there is going to be this kind of push to launch attacks in retaliation or to at least show that they're still in the game somehow. Um, and Canadians could be involved with that. I think I think it's completely plausible that, um, uh, that these guys will go to another conflict zone and continue to fight or to launch attacks in Europe. I think one thing we have to understand is it's not so much a kind of nationalistic thing that these guys are in, right? They're not, they don't really care whether you attack Canada, the U.S., or Europe. For them, it's kind of just a, uh, just a notion that you're attacking the West is enough. And so they'll right. go to the most um, easiest and logistically feasible target, whether it's Paris or London or Berlin or whatever it is. And so, we, so the, the broader problem for the Canadian government is not so much that these guys are going to come back home, but that Canadians, Canadian citizens could be responsible for large-scale massacres in European cities, um, and that would be a big problem, and that would be um, quite crazy. And so that, that, so I think the Canadians do have to be aware of what's happening internationally with their fighters, because we did, we have had a hundred or so leave from Canada to join a variety of different groups in Syria. Uh, not all of them joined ISIS, and not all of them are men, but um, there is there is that fear, I think. That, that some of these kind of hardened um, fighters could go launch uh, or cause quite a bit of havoc in other parts of the world and launch, you know, Paris-style attacks somewhere else. Is it is it not fair to categorize anyone who has been radicalized and left and joined a terrorist organization as hardened? I guess my, my question is, are any of these individuals who have actually, you know, you use the example of, of the, the women in Egypt who actually never made it to where they were wanting to go ultimately but for anyone who's actually made it all the way to the end and crossed that line and actually joined physically with a terrorist group is it not fair to say that they are perhaps all in some respects irredeemable and they're all hardened and they should all be considered as a legitimate threat um i i mean i know that's the 
common view, and I think that partly comes from the fact that we we think ISIS is a unique, uniquely bad organization, right? And so part of the way I've been responding to that is to say that there are returnees already in Canada and Europe from a variety of previous conflicts. So we do have guys who fought in Afghanistan, Bosnia, Libya. Um, some of them weren't kind of uh, fighting with terrorist organizations, but they were fighting with rebel groups, uh, Sri Lanka, Somalia, and so on that are back in Canada, that are back in the U.S. and Europe, um, so, you know, some of these old-school guys who fought in the 80s and so on. Um, and most of them came back, started the life, got married, had kids, and now they're, uh, and quite a few of them are now counseling other youth to not follow that path, right? And so I think um, it depends what it depends what we're talking about when we talk about returnees. Are we talking about kind of operational guys who were sent back by ISIS to launch attacks, or are we talking about individuals who decided... Um, while in the movement that they had actually made a mistake and they spent the next year trying to escape? Um, are we talking about individuals who are still kind of committed to the jihadist cause but have left for a variety of other reasons, whether it was, you know, they got injured or they got too old or they got too tired, um, some had some kind of battle fatigue and so on? Um, so so we, we kind of have to separate what we mean by the fighter, I think, because not everybody... Um, went for the same reasons, and not everybody left for the same reasons. And, and yes, they'll, some of them will be trained and know how to use a gun and all that, but I think a lot, some of the cases that we've seen, even with ISIS that came back, um, they kind of fled. Like one guy uh, that's in Canada at the moment fled because he just, you know, he spent a few months there and just decided that this group wasn't for him anymore and decided to leave. Um, another, a bunch of others in, in Alberta, for example, um, spent a few weeks there and then escaped and came back here. Um, so there are cases like that of, of fighters who are already back here. The other complicating component, particularly with ISIS and the Islamic State, is is the women and the children. Um, we've never seen ever this level of mobilization of women of women who left to go join a movement overseas. Um, you know, Al Qaeda never kind of recruited women to this scale, and never, uh, and actually made the argument that women and children do not belong uh, in this kind of war zone. Whereas ISIS basically said, you know, because we have a stable state structure, not necessarily a, a, a kind of rebel movement, you're welcome to come and live here. You're welcome to do whatever you do in the West. You can do it here. And so we did have, you know, in Canada we have about 10 to 15 women who left to go live under the caliphate, not to fight for the caliphate, um, and all of them have given birth to children. And all of them will be trying to come back if they're not killed some, somehow um, or, or, or go to other other countries and try to live their life there. So there, there is a kind of, uh, particularly with ISIS, there's a kind of multifaceted problem, which I don't think you can just bomb yourself out of. Um, and, and so we have to kind of uh, infuse our structures here, whether it's the legal system, the counseling, social work system, uh, whether it's the community organizations and NGOs, with enough training and knowledge about how to deal with these kind of problems um, coming uh, or going forward into the next couple of years. We don't have the same problem as Europe, so that that's kind of a thankful thing. Like we have 100 people, uh, about 23 of whom are already dead. Um, so our problem is a bit manageable. You know, we have like 70 people, men and women and kids, who need some kind of uh, either legalistic uh, consequence, or maybe all of them need a legalistic consequence. But after that legalistic uh, prison time, they need kind of counseling and social work and, and, and some kind of uh, way to move their life forward, because some of them are very young. Uh, some of our women left when they were 17, 18 years old. 
um, now they're 22, 23, and have two kids, and they're wanting to come back to Canada. So it's not it's not something you can just ignore, but it's not something you can bomb yourself out of as well. And so I think part of the you know I, I agree with some of the argument from the public that ISIS is uniquely bad, and yes, we have fighters who are back from Afghanistan and other conflicts, but ISIS is uniquely bad, and we got to kind of treat them differently. On the other hand, um, we do have fighters back in the country. Uh, for a long time, who haven't done anything? We've never really had an. I mean, this I could be wrong on this, but I don't think we've had an actual attack from a returnee or any or anything like that. So, from other con- conflicts, I mean, I want to um, I, I want to return yeah. just in a moment to um, something you said earlier and, and talk more broadly about this idea of perhaps um, softer policies. Um, as mm-hmm. opposed to hard policies in, in, in dealing with this issue. But just one last question on this train of thought, um, and you gave a lot of detail there on on differing, I guess, profiles, if that's an appropriate word, for, for individuals who have gone abroad and then are looking to return. How can you tell who fits what profile? You know, how how do you really know? Is it possible to really know? You know, someone can go abroad, perhaps, and then and then say that they got scared or they, 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 they made a mistake and things like that and came back. And I'm thinking from a purely kind of um, a devil's advocate position here. How do we really know? How do we really know they're not just lying? How can you tell? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think this is, um, this is the kind of Phil Gersky argument, right? And, and, and he's, he's uh, right to ask it. I mean, it, uh, because he's spent so much time in law enforcement, um, it, it is a different problem than the way someone like me talks about it from academia. Um, whereas I can create, you know, interesting categories of different profiles and so on. But uh, when you're faced, when when they land at Pearson Airport or something, and you're uh, you're a law enforcement official and, and and you're faced with this guy, you don't know which one he is. <laughs> um, and I think um, I think I, I think we have to look at it in in terms of a broader question of disengagement, right? Um, it's not some it's not simply about what they think and what they say. It's about do you mo- can you monitor them? Um, for a little while to see if they've actually disengaged from the movement. Um, do, are they keeping the same friends? Are they talking to the same people? Are they visiting uh, their same networks? Are they on the same websites? Are they doing you know similar things that they were doing before, which might indicate that you know yes they might tell you that they're de-radicalized, but are they still kind of dabbling in the movement in some way? Right. Um, but un- unfortunately, you know, it does involve. Uh, some resources. I think most of these people should be arrested when they return, and they should face some legal consequence, um, and you know, dealt, be dealt with in that sort of way. And I think uh, the question is: Are we are we kind of equipped? Is the prison system equipped to kind of get these people on, on the flip side uh, in a way that they're not further further radicalized or or, or, or even or an even larger threat to some degree? Um, but no, I don't envy. I don't envy law enforcement with this problem. I think they have a real problem of of telling who's who, and that's not that's not an easy one. Um, so in a way, the pro- the way to deal with it is to treat everyone like a threat, um, and 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 try to prosecute them to the best of your ability. Uh, but but as we've as we've learned, that also is not an easy Certainly. thing to do because because um, the problem with Syria particularly is that it's a bit of a black hole. There's not a lot and, of ability yeah, to gather the appropriate evidence, I would imagine, or the necessary evidence in a lot of cases. Exactly, and we we have no idea for some of these guys what they've done, or what they've been doing once they enter Syria. Uh, sure, some of them had a Twitter account, and they posted pictures with Humvees and all this kind of stuff, but if you're 
Uh, the vast majority of Canadians never tweeted. The vast majority of Canadians didn't really have a Twitter account, Facebook page. Um, and if and even and even if they did, a good defense attorney will say, "Well, how do you know this is my client's Twitter feed, and how do you know this is my client's Facebook account? What ev- actual evidence do you have um, that he was um, that he was a part of a terrorist organization? Because it's mm-hmm. not illegal to go to Syria." It's illegal to join and fight for a terrorist organization. So how do you actually prove that side of it and that component of it? Certainly, um, certainly not, a difficult yeah. task. Um, yeah. So moving from from kind of the harder policies to a little bit of the, I don't know if softer is the right word, but I know it's used sometimes in, in comparisons. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about countering violent extremism programming or CVE programming. Um, that's one of the one of the policies uh, policy suites that's being put forth in Canada as a way to address the threat posed um, by uh, returning uh, foreign fighters or even just the idea of radicalization before people leave. Um, could you give us kind of a sense of what CVE programming entails? Um, yeah, I think it depends what you mean. It depends if you mean um, a, a, the, the kind of prevention side of it or the DRAD side of it, right? And so the prevention side of it would deal with individuals who are who haven't been to you know who haven't left to Syria, who haven't uh, crossed that kind of legal threshold of doing something illegal where they're going to be arrested, but they are setting off red flags for anyone who's watching. Sometimes it's family members, sometimes it's siblings, sometimes it's friends. Uh, they're visiting the wrong websites. They're talking about ISIS. They're talking about uh, raising money to go to Syria, whatever it may be that kind of raises a red flag for, with uh, those around them. Um, and these individuals, uh, the CVE programs that are in existence in Canada, uh, namely like the Montreal Center for De-Radicalization, the Calgary's Redirect Program, uh, the RCMP kind of hub model uh, in parts of Toronto, um, and, a, and a whole host of others in other parts of the uh, other parts of the country, um, basically try to decide whether this is a mental health problem, whether it's a kind of religious problem, whether it's um, something to do with the family, uh, and kind of marshal enough support to uh, counsel the the youth in an appropriate way. So if they do believe that it's a, a kind of misreading of the religious text or something, they'll put them in front of an imam. Uh, or or some kind of religious scholar for a time. If they believe that it's a legitimate mental health issue, they'll put them in front of a counselor. If this is a uh, an issue of the home environment being violent or or abusive or neglectful or whatever it is, then then you know you're, you you can go the social worker counselor route. Um, I think I think I think the basic idea is try to intervene in the young person's life before they actually cross that threshold to committing uh, or doing something illegal, at which point. Uh, you know, law enforcement steps in, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, the, the, the point is to try to pay attention to these red flags and do something before they do something illegal. Um, and 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 that those kinds of programs exist now all over the world, um, and with, with varying degrees of success and 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 uh, variations. The DRAD stuff, uh, I think, we're still in Canada at least. We still haven't really done much of that. Um, and these are the individuals who are, for example, coming out of prisons um, or coming back from Syria. Uh, that conversation of how to deal with them once they return, how to, um, aside from simply uh, try to charge them and throw them in jail for a couple of years, um, hasn't really been talked about, or at least is, is now starting to become an issue. Um, we're going to see a whole bunch of women come back. We're going to see a whole bunch of children come back. We're going to see a whole bunch of fighters come back, Maybe. Um, then, then the question is, what do you do? Let's say you can't prove that he was with ISIS, but there's some evidence, at least, that 
uh, may not may not hold up in court, but at least you know that he was there. <laughs> um, then what do you do? What kind of counseling uh, can we recommend? Counseling? Do we surveil? Do we watch this guy, and for how long? Um, and 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 those kinds of things have to come into play. Um, for the children, um, there's a kind of typical framework of uh, you know uh, post the, the same way you would deal with a ch- child soldier, for example, or uh, someone from a abusive household. Um, so there's a conversation happening in policy circles now of can we train kind of child psychologists and, and child psychiatrists um, with just that little bit of extra training they need uh, with the Syria context or the ISIS context that they can take all of their expertise and the fact that they've been dealing with neglected and abused youth for the last however long uh, and, and, and kind of just deal with this issue as well. Just add this issue as another thing that you're dealing with. Um, and, and so these are the kind of different issues that, that are going to be uh, dealt with going forward, I think. So mm-hmm. the, the prevention conversation is very different than the DRAD conversation. And I think uh, one of them is very legalistic and the other tries to prevent prevent it from getting there or prevent it from crossing that threshold. Well, certainly. In this, when I, in my conversation with, with Phil Gursky, we also talked about this idea of, you know, there are certain reactive policies and there are certain proactive policies, and you really need a combination mm-hmm. of both if you're ever going to fully, I guess, address the issue, if this is an issue at this point, that can be fully addressed, however you define that. Um, We're going to have to leave it there. But uh, Dr. Amara Singham, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time to provide some insight on this topic. Oh, not a problem. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. This episode was made possible thanks to the support of the Carleton University Graduate Students Association. The GSA represents the collective interests and promotes the general welfare of the graduate students of Carleton University, and they offer a suite of resources and services to help graduate students make the most out of their school experience. To learn more, you can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca. I'd also like to acknowledge the hard work of our production team, Rakia Mohammed, Hamza Haddad, Samran Roy, Kenneth Boddy, and Joe Venkatesh. With a special thanks to Nabil Batsia for consulting on this episode. Until next time, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. <laughs>